so it's great to have you here, Tim. Uh, we're, we're going to be discussing uh, all things uh, Rego, OPA, and Stida. But before we kind of like dive in uh, to that topic, can you tell us a bit about like what you do, where you work, and kind of like why you're here? Yep, sure. So, yep, my name is Tim Henricks. I'm the CTO and co-founder at Styra. Uh, Styra is a company name, if you haven't heard of it. Um, I'm also one of the co-creators of the Open Policy Agent Project. Um, and then, you know, as a CTO, one of the things that I do uh, is, is I really set the, you know, technical vision for the, for the company. And, and so our company is fundamentally about uh, solving authorization problems for the enterprise. So uh, I'm super excited to be here today to just chat about authorization. It's always, it's always fun. It's the thing I do day in and day out. So I've really been looking forward to this. Yeah, and, and again, as I was saying, kind of like before we got started, that's, I, I, I was really looking to, to having you uh, kind of like on the space. It's, it's a great thing, what you're doing with OPA, with Styra, and, and definitely kind of like changing a bit about like the, the ecosystem in authorization. So uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, let's kind of like dive into it. Uh, again, I'm talking about things like OPA. Uh, you are the creator or co-creator of the OPA and the Open Policy Agent. You work on, at SIDA. Uh, can you tell us like what, what, you, what each of those is? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, at Styro, one of the things that we aim to do is provide um, a unified solution for authorization. Um, and what that means, at least for me, is that, you know, there's so many people that are embracing cloud and cloud native technologies that when they do that, they embrace a whole new technology stack, right? You're talking about Kubernetes and microservices, new, new databases, you're maybe using heavily probably CI CD pipelines, and maybe you're spinning up cloud infrastructure with something like Terraform or CloudFormation. Um, and so, you know, when we started Styra, kind of the observation that we made was, look, all of these different pieces of software today have their own unique way of solving authorization, right? Which is the problem of controlling, obviously, which actors, which people and which machines can perform which actions on the software. And so we said, well, that's kind of silly. What we really ought to do is have really one core way of solving authorization that can be applied to all these different, you know, use cases, all these different layers of the cloud native stack. And so that's really what, uh, what we founded Styra to do, is to provide that unified solution to, to authorization and policy more generally. Along the way, um, what we decided sort of architecturally was that we needed a distributed uh, implementation of authorization. Um, and so that's kind of where OPA comes into the picture. So the Open Policy Agent Project is, is an open source project, for those of you who haven't seen it, that, was, that we started at Styra, and then we later donated it to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And so the idea behind OPA um, is that it, it's really designed to be the piece of software that makes a bunch of authorization decisions. Um, and so the idea is that you run OPA in as many places as you like within your infrastructure. You might run you know, several instances of it on each of your Kubernetes clusters. You might run it as a sidecar next to each of your microservices. You might run it in your CI-CD pipeline um, to actually validate Terraform plans before they get um, deployed um, uh, and applied. You might run OPA to solve, um, you know, actually deployment questions, like where should this app be deployed? The idea is that you take OPA and you can, it's a very lightweight process, you can run it in as many places as you like to actually make authorization decisions. Um, and so that was kind of, we think of that as the authorization data plane sometimes. Uh, it's the thing that makes decisions all on its own. Um, and then the other thing that we do at Styra is that we have a, a commercial product. And the idea behind that product is that it provides a management functionality, the control plane 
it uh, embeds a bunch of expertise that we've gained about how you solve these different kinds of authorization problems into software. Um, and so that's kind of the data plane, that's kind of the control plane piece of that overall architecture. So that's how I always think about it. OPA, um, as we like to call it, is the piece of software that is responsible for making authorization decisions wherever those decisions need to be made. And then you've got Styra's product, which we call the declarative authorization service, which is that management plane, that control plane, that embodiment of authorization expertise um, that you can use uh, to, to go ahead and, and um, give you that single pane of glass into all the authorization policies and decisions that are being made by OPA throughout your infrastructure. Okay, that's great. So thanks for, for giving us that, that high level kind of like bird's eye overview of both like OPA and Stida. So kind of like you, if, if I understand correctly, kind of like playing it back to you, you started saying, hey, like there should be quote, a single way to do authorization and not just a single way, but a single kind of like way to do it in a distributed fashion. Uh, so at Stida, the company, you, you started the open policy agent, which you later donated to open source, which means now if I want to go use the open policy agent, I can go, I can watch a CD source code, I can run it. It's free for me to use. But then if I want to go like start playing with uh, Stida, the product, kind of like this control plane, this distributed authorization uh, system, is, is that kind of like the, the right word that does? Uh, that's kind of like where Stida comes in. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah. Go, yeah. So, so definitely, uh, yeah, I, don't, I think I agreed with everything you said there. Okay, good. So kind of like, what is a, a policy a engine, right? Like what, what is, what makes that different from policy as code? And, and how does it relate to what you're doing with OPA and with Stida? Yep, great. So uh, when you start thinking about sort of enforcing um, policies and having a unified solution to, to authorization, uh, there are a number of different components that, 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 that you need. Um, moreover, when you start, and a policy engine is one of those components. Uh, moreover, there's a sort of a, a, an approach that we've taken with Styra and OPA, uh, and that's to embrace a, a policy as code. Uh, kind of mentality and tool set um, to, to solving and providing this unified solution authorization. So I'll, I'll speak more about each of those. Um, so policies code is really just this idea that the policies that we write, um, that a, a, let's say a user writes about, you know, which Kubernetes resources are safe or which microservice APIs are, are, um, are, are permitted um, or whatever the domain is, those policies should really be codified in a, in a file format. Right? There should be a file format that is completely designed to express whatever policies uh, are necessary to be enforced. And so I always liken this to like, you know, image files, right? They're JPEGs and they're GIFs. There's a, they're dedicated file formats for, for representing images, just like they're dedicated file formats for movies, uh, right? MPEGs. Um, so what we're saying here is that policies code is kind of this idea that policy shouldn't be, you know, hidden in the... Uh, somehow in you know Java or, or Rust or whatever language you're, you're implementing your system, and rather you should be able to take those policies and 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 decouple them, pull them out, and express them in a dedicated file format. So that's part of policy as code um, that that is um, that is sort of embodied by the Open Policy Agent project. So OPA includes a definition for a file format that allows you to express whatever policies you care about. OPA also includes a policy engine. The goal of that policy engine is to be able to take the, the policy file format, uh, you load that file, any file that you like, into OPA, 
And now uh, OPA can go ahead and process and make policy decisions based on those, those files and the inputs that it's handed. Um, and so that's kind of the second piece of policy as code, the second piece uh, that, that is part of this open source uh, OPA project. The third piece that I would say goes right along with policy as code is making sure that we have enough tools um, to be able to do things like uh, author policy, to test policy, to debug it, to profile it. So sort of the same ideas, so the same kind of tool chain that we have for, for programming languages that many of us know and love, uh, or maybe not love, uh, uh, are, should be available for, for helping us to understand and write and debug our, our policies. And so that's kind of the third the third idea. There's a file format, there's a policy engine that understands that file format. There's some tools that sort of round out that experience. Um, and then also as part of, uh, part of OPA, and, and this may go beyond the sort of basic policy as code paradigm, um, you know, OPA has a bunch of integrations with existing and popular, typically open source, but not always, projects where you can use that OPA file format to express policy, and then you hand it over to the OPA that is integrated into that, uh, that third-party project, and, and away you go. You've actually um, used the OPA policy language to, to describe and, therefore, and then enforce uh, the policies that you care about in the real world. That, that makes sense. So th this is kind of like you know, policy-specific language, right? Like when, when we're talking about a file format to express these policies, this is, again, as you say, just like Java, so just like maybe Python, but again, different syntax, different grammar, of naturally different meaning, different semantics. But all that's doing is just kind of like laying that foundation of like, hey, this is my logic for policies. Then OPA comes and runs that. It's kind of like a runtime, regardless of like how it runs it. And, and that's kind of like you separate the two. And then on top of that, if you think about the regular programming language that we're all used to, you have an IDE, you can like, you can play that, you can debug, you can set breakpoints, you can test. Uh, all of those things, all of those pieces that you mentioned are like authoring, profiling, and testing, that would be kind of like the, the IDE and, and everything development tooling around that uh, policy language. Is that kind of like a good analogy in that regard as well? Yep, yep, I like that quite a bit. And then, and then the only thing that I'll, that I'll sort of um, add on to that is, you know, how that relates then to, to, to Styra as a whole. And obviously, you know, we're, we're working hard to make sure that, you know, OPA, um, uh, is, is incredibly successful, defines that policy as code framework, um, you know, completely on its own. And then, and then obviously as part of that, that, um, that management control plane piece, then we, you know, obviously take all those tools, we, we, we bring them together, we give you a vertically integrated kind of end-to-end -end solution that, that sort of brings the, that vision of, of that single pane of glass uh, into reality. Um, and so yeah, just to finish off your question there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So one of the things you mentioned was, again, not, not having your, your policy logic, not, not the policy code itself, but the policy logic hidden in your app, right? You don't want to have if statements all over your, again, PHP, Python, Java application where you're implementing authorization decisions. It's a good thing to have those like offloaded, and that allows you to do kind of like a number of things, but basically it's not obscure. Uh, how did you kind of like... IDA. What are the origins of OPA and Styra? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, before we started Styra, um, the, the founders were at we were at VMware, and we'd come into VMware through uh, through an acquisition through Nasira. Um, so it was funny, you know, in the early days of Nasira, which was one of the companies involved in, the, in who actually coined the term software defined networking. Uh, in the early days of Nasira, it was actually um, a company focused on policy based networking. 
Um, and so it happened that while we were at VMware, we were talking to a number of you know the, the current clients or prospects, and what they were telling us was that you know um, they they knew we were policy people, um, uh, and so what they said was, look. Uh, we've got all these different um, pieces of software and they all need authorization. They all need policy. And it'd be great if there were, you know, a, an idea, a product, a project that would sort of give us a, a single unified way of, of solving policy sort of across all those different pieces of software. Um, and so in the early days, one of the things that we did was we, we built an open source project as part of, uh, at the time it was, it was OpenStack. Um, to sort of try out this idea of, you know, what is, what is it, what are the, what is the shape of a unified solution to policy and authorization? And at the time, what we ended up with was sort of a centralized solution. Um, and then one of the things that we found was that, um, uh, if you don't know OpenStack well, it's, it's this collection of, of differing teams and services that all sort of make up, um, you know, the, the, all the traditional silos of compute, networking, and storage, but it's all done in a, in a software-defined way. And so we had this centralized solution. One of the things we found was that a, a lot of the, the developers and the other projects didn't want to take a dependency on another service in order to get its authorization decision. So, you know, if, if you're building a storage service, what they didn't want to do was anytime they were, they were received an API call that said, you know what, delete this storage uh, volume, what they didn't want to do is then make another API call to a, to a centralized service in order to get back um, an authorization decision. And the simple reason was performance and availability. Uh, they didn't want to sort of basically double uh, the number of API calls that, um, that were required to actually service uh, that incoming API. Uh, and so this kind of observation was what led us down the road toward building this distributed or designing and building this distributed version of authorization that we've that we've already talked about, where OPA is the thing making decisions at the edge, and then the Styra uh, product has this you know um, expertise, this control plane um, that helps you give that helps give you that single pane of glass. I see. So one of the things that I'm kind of like hearing from this is that in, in this type of environment where like in software defined networking, in many cases your authorization decisions like have the the local context. Uh, or, or each component has enough local context to make a decision without calling to a separate service. In that case, calling out to a centralized type service would mean a lot of overhead. So by having this, uh, again, in this specific instance, OPA agent distributed running with each of these teams, for example, you can make the decisions in each of their team's scopes without calling out to a, a centralized location. And then kind of like what the, the role that Stida plays there is that around not just, of course, authoring these policies, but also figuring out where each policy should be distributed, right? It's not just about the authoring and the versioning, but like making sure that policies are where they should be. Yep, yep, I like that, yeah. And, and, and there's this interesting sort of interplay here between centralized solutions and distributed solutions and... Um, and, and certainly, you know, given our experiences in the early days, uh, when we went ahead and designed uh, Styra's offering and, and OPA, uh, we, we, you know, we obviously we did this, we, we made sure that this distributed version would work for exactly those cases that you articulate, where the information that is needed to make the decision um, is all local, or at least it's local enough to, to, to make it locally. Um, and then one of the things that we've done over time is, is, is sort of seeing that different use cases have different sort of data dependencies, right? Like 
Um, and, and depending on those data dependencies, um, that'll push you more or, or push you more towards a distributed model or more toward a centralized model. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we, 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 we've seen with OPA is that, and that we're starting to do now so with, with DAZ is, is, is enabling that uh, or thinking about OPA as a building block that has a bunch of architectural flexibility. So in those use cases where you need to run OPA as a sidecar, it's, it's, it's great for doing that. In those use cases where you want to run OPA not only as a sidecar, but you actually want to embed it maybe into, into your service because you don't even want to pay for a local host network hop, then you can do that too. Uh, if you want to run OPA as, as a CLI, uh, in, a C, in a CLI fashion, and maybe hook it into a, into a CI pipeline, you can do that too. It's even a building block that we started seeing people use as, the, as a component in a, in a centralized service as well. So, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people uh, end up liking about OPA and, and, and Styre as well is that you get that uh, architectural flexibility. So you run uh, your decision-making engine, that policy engine piece, in whatever architectural configurations you want. And, and everybody, you know, depending on the app, depending on the data, depending on the policies even, um, uh, may need a slightly different architecture. Yeah, and, and, and I, that's one of the things that I've been seeing in Odin as, as I've been kind of like researching authorization and, and thinking about like solving authorization at scale is that, like, the, as you say, like agent type solutions like OPA or, or, or policy runtime is a very important building block because there are ways in which you can uh, express a lot of things through a, a centralized perspective. There are ways in which sometimes decentralizing things is useful. But kind of like being able to compose these two pieces gives you kind of like that extra flexibility where you can say, hey, there are some things that I can't decentralize. There are some things that I need to centralize. But that kind of like single pane of glass, that control over who has access to what remains there because you're using all of this tooling. Yep. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of journey to be on to sort of as you work with, you know, a bunch of the users and, and customers to to sort of understand and, and listen to them articulate why things need to be distributed or, or why they think they need to be centralized. And then, you know, having the technology at hand to go ahead and, and address those problems is, um, is part of the fun, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and again, it's, it's a very kind of like interesting and, and up-and-coming up and problem, right? Uh, right. So we were talking about like complementing each other and, and like products being complementary. How do like OPA and Styra play together? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the, the first level is we've already sort of covered, which is, you know, OPA is designed to be the decision making engine, right? It's the sometimes we'll call it a host local cache of policy and any data potentially that's needed to actually make decisions. Um, uh, and, and so then um, what that leaves open with with OPA is, well, how do you know uh, what policies need to be distributed to those OPAs, what data needs to be distributed to those OPAs? Um, and and that's, that's kind of the, the role that, that Styrus product plays. Uh, I'll also say that, you know, one of the other uh, ways that they complement each other is sort of this basic structural uh, difference, which is OPA, open source, uh, it, what it's great at is being the, is solving this you know unification problem at the language level, at the tool level, at the framework level. It's not opinionated, right? It 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 was designed to be this general purpose solution to authorization. And that's the way that you can actually you know unify authorization is, is it works for all these different use cases. Uh, whereas with with Styron, I think this is true for many of these sort of architectural separations that you see between open source and and closed source. Um, the, the, the commercial uh, option has a bunch of our expertise, 
uh, built into it. So that, you know, how do you actually write policies? How do you configure the, the envoy to OPA connection? Um, um, what is the structure of those policies? You know, how do you write tests? Uh, you know, all that expertise that we've gained over the years from working with, um, from working with a bunch of users and customers has been embedded in, into that commercial product. And like I said, I think that that, 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 that uh, complementation is a natural one where you've got these, you know, uh, commercial options that are highly opinionated and that make things especially easy. And then in the open source world, you've got these, uh, you know, blindingly fast, uh, incredibly general purpose solutions. Yeah, and, and I think kind of like thinking about some of the things that, that I want to kind of like bring up next, that uh, not opinionated general purpose solution is what kind of like allows you to drive from kind of its origins around like, some of its original use cases to a lot of the things you're mentioning today, like microservice authorization and CLI authorization, and like maybe just again pushing changes to Terraform cloud providers authorization. So that uh, not having an opinion and kind of like bringing everyone in has given you a lot of flexibility, and I guess that's also why you kind know, of lots of companies are using OPA as a building block for their platform authorization solutions. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it. it um... You know, when we set out to build OPA, we did design it from the perspective of it's intended to solve, to be a unified solution to authorization. So um, what's been interesting, though, is that, uh, you know, every now and again, people ask, well, what is the, you know, what was the first use case um, that, that you all, you know, used OPA for? And then, and then how did it migrate? How did it, how did it, uh, how did people pick it up and start using it for different use cases? Uh, and so I remember in the very early days of, of OPA, one of the things that we were looking at was public cloud. Uh, how do you write policies over the public cloud to, to know whether or not they're, um, you know, configured correctly? Um, and, 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 but it turned out that um, one of the things that one of the first sort of public talks that, you know, an end user picked it up and used it for was really microservice authorization. So that was Netflix. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't remember the year off the top of my head. But no, so it was Netflix, picked it up and did, did it, used it for microservice authorization. And then another year goes by and then we see that a bunch of folks are picking it up for Kubernetes. Uh, admission control, um, and then and then we start and then sort of uh, we hear start hearing more and more of these different use cases around around Terraform, around um, even starting to see uh, in CI/CD pipelines, uh, and then even seeing it in uh, in even database uh, authorization uh, and, and application authorization as well. And so uh, you know we see OPA being used uh, you know for for more and more of these different kinds of use cases, and that's you know that's obviously rewarding for us. That's, that's great. Uh, so for, for those that are listening in and also will be listening to the recording, uh, we'll add the link to that uh, talk that Tim is mentioning about like Netflix authorization. That's from uh, 2017. Uh, so we, we'll add that KubeCon link in the uh, recording notes. Um, now, wh again, wh what do you think were the main elements that allowed kind of like OPA for, to go from kind of like its origins in software-defined networking to all of these use cases. And again, you were there for, yeah. for its history, so you can probably kind of like share a good perspective with everyone. Yeah, well, um, so I think there are a number of things. So, so the first thing, the, the way we, so there may be different levels to answer that at. So one level is sort of at the language level. And so one of the premises for OPA since the beginning has been, if you can't write the policy you care about, you're not gonna be able to use it. It's gonna, it's gonna fail for that class of use cases. And so we knew when we started that we needed enough expressiveness to handle some of the more complicated authorization policies. Um, and so one of the things that we did, like I said, in the early days, we were looking at, you know, writing authorization policies, at least conceptually, over public cloud resources. 
which is very, very similar to, to uh, one of it, one of its um, very similar to like a Kubernetes authorization use case. Uh, and so l- let me like talk through. So I'll talk through some of the elements that you need in a, in a policy language uh, that's just derived directly from uh, looking at trying to write policies over like Kubernetes resources. Um, so one of the things that you do like in a, in a Kubernetes uh, kind of use case is that, you know, every time any end user, any developer is trying to spin up a new resource on a kube cluster, uh, they take that, you know, whether it's 50 lines, 100 lines, or 200 lines of, of YAML that describes the new pod or the new ingress or whatever resource they're trying to create, uh, and they hand that over to the kube API server. The kube API server will, uh, will um, go ahead and hand that resource description over to OPA. Uh, and then what it'll say is, well, hey, you know, is this resource safe to deploy under the cluster or not? And so imagine you wanted to write a policy that says something like, Ensure all of the images come from uh, from image registries uh, that are you know that have been blessed for whatever reason uh, that you know they're safe registries. So in order to actually express that policy uh, using again a general purpose policy system that hasn't had a bunch of Kubernetes knowledge built into it, you've got to be able to take that let's say hundred lines of, of JSON or YAML and you've got to be able to dig down through that hierarchical data to find the list of containers, let's say, that are showing up in the pod. And then it's an array, after all. There may not be just one image. There may be two or five or 10 or 100 in theory. And so you need to be able to then iterate over that array of containers. And you need to be able to then go ahead and dig down through each of those objects to find the the name of the image um, that, that is being actually spun up in that container. And then you've got to be able to do string manipulation on the name of that uh, particular uh, image to figure out whether it's coming from a safe registry or not. Okay, so what do we cover there? We covered digging down through through hierarchical data. We covered iteration. We covered uh, you know string manipulation. Um, and so you know if you work through some real world problems like that one, you very quickly see what kinds of building blocks you need in the language. And I've already just illustrated a couple of them. And what you'll immediately notice is that by including iteration in that list. We've jumped uh, in terms of expressiveness far beyond all the you know traditional kinds of, of authorization uh, systems, and we've ended up at a spot that's somewhere in between programming languages and and like I said, classical kinds of, of of policy or authorization systems. And so that's kind of the first thing that we did was we were working through real world problems, and what that allowed us to do was sort of understand the kinds of expressiveness that we'd need. Um, so anyway, so that that exercise. Uh, uh, allowed us to put into OPA enough expressiveness in the basic policy language that we could handle these, you know, these what we sometimes call configuration authorization use cases. And then that expressiveness was, was certainly sufficient to go off and handle microservice authorization or, you know, Terraform uh, risk, uh, Terraform plan analysis, uh, or, or really any of, the, any of the other use cases that you see. Okay. Uh, so I think, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It also seems like the, the original use case that you were thinking of, that like Cube API server needs to make a decision, required a lot of these kind of like, I would say, flexible or uh, complex use cases that then kind of like everything trickled down for there because you started from that like very specific concrete use case, but at the same time, relatively complex in terms of like all of the things that you needed to handle. 
Yep. Yep. And then the interesting bit that, that, um, I mean, that you always know, but until you've actually gone through it and built the system to do it, 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 it definitely hits you harder, which is, you know, if you think about the different kinds of use cases, let's just take two, let's just take Kubernetes admission control and microservice authorization. In the Kubernetes admission control case, you've got these requirements, which say, Hey, I need all this flexibility, all of this, um, um, expressiveness in the, in the language. But you know what? The kind of performance demands that you have, you know, it's okay for, for the policy to run for, you know, let's say, you know, 10 milliseconds or even 100 milliseconds to make a decision. Um, if you contrast that with another use case like microservice authorization, one of the things that you'll notice is that microservice authorization is a much simpler kind of policy problem. You know, you're typically looking at, you know, a path, you know, a URL and a method, a git put post delete. You're looking at the user or the token, the, the claims in that token. Um, you know, maybe you're looking at IPs if you're thinking about all three kinds of policies. But, um, but the, the policies you write are typically much simpler. However, the demands from a performance point of view are much higher. And so there, uh, uh, you know, maybe a millisecond. Is that, is that quick enough to make a decision? Um, you, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Uh, and so what you see is that as you sort of work through these different use cases, you start, um, uh, you start realizing that there are different demands and different dimensions, right? Whether, you know, in Kubernetes, it's expressive, but the performance is sort of middle of the road in microservices. You don't need all that much expressiveness, but what you do need is performance. And so on the performance side, we've done a bunch of things that, that we can chat about if you like later. Um, but, but anyway, so that was the other kind of thing that we took away from, from the design of OPA and, and some, some of the engineering effort that's gone into it to, to make it apply to, to these, some of these different use cases. That makes sense. Uh, one of the things that, that I'm thinking about is a, a lot of the constructs that you mentioned are, are also available or in programming languages. Now, uh, OPA uses uh, Rego uh, as a programming language, that kind of like file format that we talked about earlier. Uh, why, what made you decide to kind of like build Rego? What, what are its origins? Uh, and what made you decide to also build a new language rather than, for example, using uh, any programming language that might be out there for policies? Yep, good. So, um, well, okay. So there, there's a, um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story here about uh, one of the things we tried to do. So my, my background, if I go back before Styra and before VMware, my background, uh, I, I, I did a bunch of research for years in, in declarative languages. Um, and so, you know, my background was, well, I would build a bunch of these different languages for network, for network security or for um, access control or for configuration management, so on and so forth. And, and so when we started Styra, you might think that I was just wanting to build a new language. In fact, I took the exact opposite approach because I built so many of these things. And I, know, uh, I know what it takes to get these, these things working well and, and off the ground. And so what we said at the beginning was, look, we're not going to build a new one. We're just going to find a popular language that a bunch of people know and understand um, and, then, and then use that. Um, and now one of the things that we did say at the beginning was, look, it's got to be a policy language. It's got to be something that is at least declarative. That, um, because what we know from talking to a bunch of the you know, clients back at VMware was that um, there was a, a broad range of people who were writing these policies, not all of which are, are developers. So we, we, we felt this intuitive need to have a declarative language that was, you know, at least, you know, if you squint, it, it would be a, a policy language. Um, and so one, one of the first things we did was we said, okay, look, of all the declarative languages on the planet, which ones are, are most popular, uh, most well-known? And we said, you know, it's SQL, right? That's, you know, it's a query language. Yes, it's a database language, but it's also... You know, you can, you can come up with a syntax that makes it look like any declarative language that you like. 
So one of the things that we first did was we said, okay, let's just use something like SQL. And so what we did was we said, well, let's try writing some policy over modern cloud native uh, resources using, using SQL or, or, or some, some variation thereof. Um, and so what we did was we, we grabbed one of the public clouds and we said, hey, just you know, run the API that lists all of the, I think it was all the servers, all the servers and their security groups or, or whatever the construct was. Um, and then when you get all that information, and then the, the idea was, well, let's write some policy over it. Well, so when you get all that information out of a public cloud, it's JSON, right? It's not, it's not relational data. It's not like rows and, and columns of data. It's, it's JSON. So it's deeply hierarchically nested data. And so we said, well, look, if we're going to use SQL, we, what we might as well do is go ahead and just like convert JSON into, into relational tables. And then we just write policy over those relational tables in SQL and, and you know, we're done. That seems like a sensible thing, right? <laughs> so we went ahead and tried this. And what ended up happening was that when we converted this, this JSON object that represented all the servers and security groups or whatever, we ended up with something like 200 different relational tables. Um, and, and then we, we looked at those tables and we said, well, why are there so many? And what we realized was that most of them were these like artificial tables that just sort of were constructed in order to represent all the hierarchy that existed in, naturally in the JSON. Um, and so uh, we went ahead and said, well, that's crazy because uh, uh, when you go ahead and start thinking about how you write a policy over 200 virtual tables, A, like how do you know what those tables even represent? You, you don't. But B, let's say you, you, you figured that out, then what you end up doing is writing uh, SQL queries that end up uh, uh, basically with a, with a large tower of joins. And all those joins are doing is reconstructing the basic structure that the JSON had originally. Um, and so anyway, what we realized very quickly was that any cloud native policy language would need to have native support uh, for the hierarchical data like JSON and YAML that is so pervasive in the cloud today. So when we set out to, to, to um, so there's more of that story, but, but then when we set out to build, to build OPA and Rago, uh, one of the things that we knew was that semantically it had to have native support uh, for that JSON and, um, and uh, native support for JSON. Okay, that's, that's a great story. I actually didn't know that. So uh, I learned something very interesting today. Uh, now, <laughs> kind of like continuing from, okay, we have a language, we have a runtime for it. How does OPA, the runtime, work? Like, walk us through what happens when, when I need to make an authorization decision. Like, how do you invoke it? You mentioned it can be invoked in different ways and, and in different contexts. Yeah. And, and also, how does it pick the rules and the policies to run? How does it know what code to run? Mm -hmm. Yep, good question. So when uh, you integrate OPA, pretty much... Like most of the integrations with OPA all work the same way, at least conceptually. So, and that's true whether you run OPA as a sidecar, as a CLI, as a, as a centralized service, it doesn't really matter. The way this works is that um, the, the calling service, let's say that this is a Kubernetes API server or a microservice or a, or a CI pipeline, it doesn't really matter. In all those cases, the, the, the service that needs an authorization decision um, basically realizes that it needs a decision. It cobbles together uh, basically just a JSON payload, uh, and, then, and then goes to OPA and says, hey, here's, my, here's the input that I have that I need an authorization decision about. Can you please make a decision and return it to me? And so conceptually, that's all that happens, right? OPA gets some, a JSON uh, object that represents the, the input or the, the, the thing that we need a decision about, and, and OPA makes a decision, returns it um, back to that calling service. At a high level, that's it. Um, now, there are a couple of things that you asked uh, detail-wise uh, that I'll go into. So one of which is that, you know, 
what we see a lot of people do is say, well, there are a whole bunch of different policies that I care about. Um, and, and now, like, and, and moreover, even there may be a whole bunch of different rules that I want to write. And how does OPA know which rules to pick, which ones to evaluate? And so one of the things that we design into OPA and that, and that we spend a lot of time on at the Styrodaz level is helping people sort of manage those rules, understand like uh, which rules are logically grouped together, which ones contribute to a decision, which ones don't. Um, and so the idea here is that both OPA and DAS have this ability to break all of your policies into a bunch of different components. Think of these as packages or modules in a, in a traditional programming language. So we, do the, we, we apply those same concepts of modularity uh, to policy, uh, which isn't surprising. And, and now uh, when, uh, you know, if people are using the DAS and, and they can actually write different policies broken into different packages for different like software systems that they're manipulating, at the OPA level, what that means is that uh, any get, that you can load OPA with all kinds of different policies. They each have unique names. Those, those, we call them packages. Those packages are hierarchically defined. And so now when one of those callers, the Kube API server, the microservice, your, your custom application code, your CICD pipeline, asks OPA for a, for a decision, it actually sends, very simply, an HTTP request. And the URL that that caller uses um, actually names the package uh, that it wants a decision from. So um, there, are, there is a default way that you don't actually have to know what package you care about. Um, um, but nevertheless, conceptually, that, that caller can sort of choose and decide what package, what, what collection of policy to pull a decision out of. Okay, so, so the, the caller might, because again, you said that there's a way in which it might not need to, but like, it might need to know, hey, like, I'm interested in making a decision around this. For example, if I'm going to deploy a new type of pod in Kubernetes, I'm, I'm interested in the deploy pod type policy. And then OPA, from that context, will be able to say, okay, these are the, the policies to run, these are the rules that should execute. And we talked a bit about kind of like how you can bundle and, and make, like, create this modular constructs so that you can kind of like compose them in, in different uh, rules and policies. Is that an, an accurate depiction of things? Yep, yep, uh, very good, yep. And yeah, and, and what that enables you to do is, you know, you could run OPA. If you're running OPA as a sidecar, then the kind of concept would be that there's really one like endpoint that you need to hit, right? There's one, one policy, one entry point to making policy decisions. But if you're running OPA as a daemon, right, that means that it's got probably multiple clients sitting on that same server uh, and those different clients could hit different packages um, to get different decisions or if you're running open as a centralized service the same kind of thing applies um, and so you know that 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 concept of packages and, and modularity i think is is pretty key to to or it's one of the enablers i should say for for actually in, um, helping OPA run in so many different architectural uh, settings that's that's good so We've been talking a lot, a lot about making policy decisions, and, and if anyone's listening and they're familiar with like attribute-based access control, uh, that's kind of like what's typically called a policy decision point in that type of like architecture. So you, you have lots of components, and, and we actually don't need to go into detail there. We, we, we covered a lot of those with uh, David Prosard when we talked about like the, the history of authorization and AVAC. But one thing I do want to kind of like get your perspective on, Tim, is um, SACML was this kind of like policy language, was part of like the, the OASIS uh, standard, well, not the part of the standard, but it's actually pointed to in the OASIS standard for, for ABAC. Uh, what do you see as the differences between like Rigo and OPA and SACML beyond the fact that one is based on data log and the other one is XML? 
Um, yeah, well, and uh, what I usually like to do is think about uh, up-leveling this just a bit, and I'll give you some context there, and then, and then maybe I'll, I'll dig into some more of the details. So, and, and I touched on this, I think, a little bit earlier, which is, you know, when I think about the, the, the spectrum of authorization solutions that, you, that everybody has, well, everybody that's interested in authorization has heard about, you think about role-based access control, you think about attribute-based access control, uh, you think about access control lists, right, which are really, you know, think of that as I always think of that as people writing allow and deny statements um, um, uh, that maybe are evaluated in order. Uh, you think about, you know, the IEM solutions uh, is what I like to call like all the public cloud kind of instantiations. Um, and then you could even go so far as to talk about, you know, policy-based and relation-based um, access control. Uh, and then there's a whole history of the, you know, if you go look at the, the research folks, they, they love to build and design new languages all the time. Anyway, so, so in that spectrum, oh, and then at the far end of the spectrum, which we've already touched on, um, and I've been sort of introducing these in the order of expressiveness, at least as I usually think about them, at the far end of that, at that spectrum, you've got programming languages, right, which are Turing complete. Any, any algorithm that you can write, you can express in those, in those languages. Um, and so I, I like to think about that sort of one-dimensional uh, view of, of these languages and how they differ, and, and at least along the, the, the expressiveness, and, and therefore the complexity spectrum. Um, and so the way I always think about OPA and Rego is that it sits, you know, it's more expressive than RBOC, it's more expressive than ABOC, it's more expressive than ACLs and, and IAM policies, at least for the most part. It, um, but it is less expressive than, than all those programming languages that so many of us know. Um, and so the idea is that it, it has many of the elements that you see, like iteration and, and, and handling of hierarchical data that we talked about before. Oh, string manipulation, IP, ar arithmetic, uh, a number of those same basic features that you see in programming languages. But it's designed to be less expressive. It's designed, it's purpose-built to be one of these policy languages. And therefore, it's, it's, it's better compared to, to all the others uh, that, that we talked about there. That, that makes sense. So in that kind of like axis or, or spectrum from like least to most expressive, OPA would sit somewhere between like more expressive than most AVAC solutions, less expressive than Turing complete programming languages, if that makes sense. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I always like to get, yeah, I, I always like to get that point across that you're, you're, you know, you know, RBOC is something you could encode in Ruby and ABOC is something you could encode in Ruby and all these things that we've, you know, worked with and dealt with for years and years and years, they can all, you know, they're all less expressive than programming languages. Um, anyway, so, so that was the, the, the first thing I, I wanted to mention. And then if you think about how OPA compares um, to some of these things like Zach Moll, you know, one of the, the big things that I'll say is that, you know, OPA was really designed to be a policy language. Um, not just an authorization language. And, and, and I, I, I don't mean anything critical there. I just mean that often when, when I hear people talking about authorization, typically what they're talking about are decisions that get made that are yes, no, true, false, ones and zeros. Um, with OPA, we knew we had to make decisions that are, that are richer than that. Uh, um, and so, yes, you can make, you know, Boolean decisions, allow, deny, true, false. But, um, but, the kinds of decisions that OPA can return are really any arbitrary JSON object. Uh, and so that could be, for example, maybe you want to write a policy that, that decides what rate limit to apply. Well, there you need to return a number, right? It's not true, false. It's not allowed to deny. It's a number. Uh, maybe you want to return, maybe you want to define a policy that uh, decides where to deploy an application. Well, there you might need to return as a policy decision itself the list of whatever, kube clusters, onto which you want to deploy this app. Um, even if you think about uh, a, a sort of a classic sort of microservice authorization 
um, use case, even there, you end up wanting to return more than simply a bit of allowed and I. You want to return something that's like, uh, that's got multiple elements. It's got a, a, yes, it's got a bit that says, is this allowed or not? But it may have a status code. You know, is this a 403 or, or some other 400 code or, or 200? Uh, is this a, uh, what's the error message that gets returned? Uh, any, any headers that you want to set, uh, assuming that this request is allowed? Uh, and so that richer collection of decisions uh, is what we is one of the reasons that we will often say once we introduce OPA, like in a in a more intimate setting, that we say that OPA is really a policy language, and authorization is an incredibly popular part of that. Um, but um, but but that it that, but that they do have different sort of um, um, goals. Yeah, and, and I I really like that. One of the things that I was thinking of the other thing from a policy perspective, uh, beyond that boolean throw of words, is there might even be cases where. It's not either allow or deny. I might just be saying, hey, you, you need to prove that you are who you are and that might require more factors for authorization, right? That's not allow and that's not mm -hmm. deny. That's, hey, elevate your permission set. Uh, and that's something that it's, it's not trivial to express, of course, with true or false, but at the same time, you, if you take that all the way to it's not just an enumeration, but it's a decision that you're making, that decision might not be a question of does this user have this permission? It might be, what should I do with this? And that's kind of like what you're getting at with, hey, I might be deploying to this cluster, this other cluster. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of like separate things a bit now and like first maybe dive a bit into OPA and, and the things that are coming. Um, but before we kind of like do that, again, OPA, as you mentioned, is, is open source. Um, what are the, the challenges of having OPA be open source? And, and what are the great parts about it? Yep, great question. So, you know, OPA has been... Uh, backstory here is that we always knew that OPA had to be open source. When you're building uh, something like policy as code with the goal of having a unified framework for solving authorization, um, that kind of project, that kind of unification project, I think naturally lends itself to open source. And so we, we always knew it was going to be open source. Every line of code that we've ever written for OPA has been open source. Um, and so, you know, for us, this wasn't a thing that we even really thought about. And, um, and so beyond the sort of basic problem statement that, that OPA was set out to solve, uh, what we also knew uh, in a unification effort was that we needed a bunch of community to get involved and to, and to lend us their, um, their expertise in different dimensions to make sure that uh, you know, when we're talking about applying OPA to Kubernetes or to microservices or to Terraform, that um, that in fact the the that we were solving the real problems and that OPA was was solving the problems in the way they needed to be solved, um, and so that kind of thing just just naturally feels always felt to us as though it had to be done in the community. There's so much value in in getting a whole bunch of folks that are interested in the project that can con contribute to it in one way or another. Um, that, 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 that kind of expertise, the, 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 there's no real way to, to develop that kind of expertise without this, this kind of open source um, angle to it. So, so I, I, I think that's all great. Uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, there's so many fun things about open source. You know, I love being able to go and you know, have chats like this um, about, about what we're doing. I love going to, to conferences, you know, meeting the folks who are using OPA or that have questions about it face-to-face, um, -face, uh, you know, being able to give those talks um, uh, I, th I think there's so many great things about about open source that um, you know for us it was it was very easy. That's, that's great, and it seems things things are kind of like on a, on a very good track, uh, so to speak. 
Yep, totally. Yeah, I uh, do it again for sure. Good. Uh, so, one of kind of like diving into Rigo, uh, one of the things uh, I, I've been seeing as part of kind of like in my research, talking to different people at different companies, different sizes, is like they're using OPA, they're using Rigo, but they say something like, hey, I, I don't want anyone or any of my dev teams to be able to write arbitrary Rigo. It's, it's too powerful. Um, it, it allows them too many options when I, I just want them to kind of like build a few things. So what, what kind of like companies that are medium to large size technology companies are, are doing, and some of them, I'm seeing that they tell me, hey, I'm building a layer on top of Rego where there are only some things that you can do, and that's what we expose to, to our development teams. Um, what, are you seeing that as well? And, and what are your thoughts about this in terms of like future features of Rego and OPA? Yep. Well, so yeah, um, certainly it's a case that uh, you know, we, we talked about this earlier, we touched on it, which is that, you know, OPA was designed to be, to define the language for unified authorization. And so we've already talked about what that means in terms of expressiveness of things you can say. Um, and so then what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of contrast that with how people in an org uh, and the different personas within an organization that typically want to contribute to policy. So one of the things that we've seen, certainly uh, uh, Styro working with some of these folks, is that they're different people, different personas want a different interface for, for writing policy. So, um, you know, one of the things that we do in, in our product is we say, well, look, you can write text. Um, and you know what, if that's what you want to do, you know, go for it. Um, uh, but some people say, well, you know, I, I really like to have a more guided view of, or a guided experience when it comes to writing policy. So I don't, I don't want to lose any of the power but what I want to do is have sort of a, a GUI that's a, a layer on top of text that just sort of guides me through writing the policies that I, that I actually care about. Um, and then we, we've even, and we found a bunch of folks who say, you know what, I don't even really want to write policies at all. I want a bunch of pre-built policies that I can pull out of a list. Um, and then I can go ahead and, you know, maybe I can parameterize them, right? I can add a few, you know, uh, um, you know, I can, you know, for in, in Kubernetes, for example, like, what is the list of trusted registries? Well, you know, if nobody on the planet can tell uh, some uh, random organization what the trusted registries are, so you need to parameterize those rules. Uh, we've even gone so far as to have packs of, of policies, you know, like mapping PCI down onto uh, packs of policies and then saying, well, look, there's now a wizard interface that will walk you through putting all of these different rules in place. And each one you can parameterize. And so on and so forth. So I certainly see the value in having different interfaces for writing policy. And one thing I will say is that uh, what we've seen is that different organizations will have different, um, you know, goals or, or aspirations, or maybe I should even say limitations around what kinds of policies they want their um, their 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 um, you know, say developers to write. Um, and so you know, what, one of the things that we we did a blog post on recently was how you can use interestingly enough, Rego to actually lint Rego code. Uh, why? Because after all, Rego code can be converted into JSON, the, the ASTs, and then you can use Rego to go ahead and do that linting. And so often, and by the way, like linting sometimes means like relatively like low level things, like do you put spaces in the right place or not? But, but if you really think of just linting as putting guardrails on the kinds of policies that people can write, um, then, uh, then really linting is a pretty powerful way of getting that kind of, of control um, and and, and, I, and I'll say firsthand that, you know, I see different organizations wanting different uh, kinds of, of policies and different, different linting rules effectively for their policies. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense. I actually haven't read that blog post. I, I'll take a look. Uh, it's it's probably fairly interesting to see Rigo linting Rigo. It's, uh, and, and also kind of like a, a good uh, geek read pro as well. Yeah. yeah, it's a very meta read, right? It's a very yes. language-focused kind of uh, uh, audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, so well, another thing we talked about earlier was like performance and latency, especially in the context of like microservices and also in the context of like not centralizing some things when possible, when you have that context. Uh, how does op uh, Rego optimize for performance? And, and, and are there any features coming in the roadmap that maybe aren't there when you're planning ahead? Uh, yeah, so there, uh, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So, okay, there's, so there are a few things about, about Rego that I'll mention here. So one of which was that, um, you know, when we design, you know, if you think about sort of core design principles, one of those core design principles was, was around performance. So one of the things that we know, and especially, you know, maybe building on this last conversation, we've got a broad range of different people who want to be writing policy. And so, what we want, one of the design goals for, for Open Rego has always been uh, that, you know, as a policy author, you should be focused predominantly on correctness and maintainability of your policies. Um, and that what we want is for OPA to shoulder much of the burden for performance. Uh, now, obviously, there are only, there's only so much you can do there, but, but, but conceptually, that kind of, of shared response, that, that kind of split of responsibilities is what we're aiming for. And so there are a couple of very concrete things that we've done to, to help with this. Uh, so one of which is that the, the language itself, you can think of it as being, as, as being designed as in sort of an onion, right? So there's this core part of the language that, um, that if you put policies in that core part of the language, then evaluation runs very, very quickly. Um, and then uh, if you go outside of that, that fragment, that syntactic fragment, then you gain some expressiveness, right? You can write policies more compactly or more efficiently, but you give up a little bit of the performance um, um, and, and then so on and so forth. So, um, so that's, that is one of the sort of ideas behind, behind Rego is that you know, there, it is designed as an onion. Now, the way that we make that core element of Rego fast is, is we do something called rule indexing. So the idea here is that you, know, you might write, uh, imagine, that you've already split up your policy into different packages. And so, you know, the, the rules within one package, uh, let's say you've got 100 or 1,000 allow rules for whatever reason. Now, typically, we don't actually see that all that often, but, but that could happen, right? You could write 1,000 allow rules. Um, and now the question is, when OPA is given, is being asked to make a decision, how does OPA find which of those rules to evaluate? Uh, and so what we do in the, uh, at, at compile time is uh, we effectively go and do static, or we, I mean OPA. OPA goes and there are algorithms baked into OPA that will go and do static analysis of those, of those rules. And then what it'll do is it'll, it'll organize them into a try. And the idea then becomes that when the input comes into OPA, um, uh, OPA will then go and sort of inspect the input. And by inspecting the input, it knows how to walk the try to find that, that subset of rules that, um, that actually need to be evaluated. Right. Um, and so that's that's one very key uh, performance uh, uh, feature that we put into OPA. You don't even notice it's happening because it's just it's always on. Right. There's no way to turn it off. Yeah. Just a uh, small thing there. So for, for anyone listening, a try is a prefix tree. So essentially start walking down the tree or some again a particular path down the tree. And that prefix is kind of like the only the, the set of rules or policies that you need to run. But not more than that. Is that kind of like how you're using it? 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what I meant. Yeah. And, and the edges here correspond to basically tests on what's, what, what's included in the input. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So. That's great. So um, what, one of the things we also talked about really to latency was about like microservices and like what happens when you don't have all of your data local. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what for your, again, customers using Styla, for people using OPA, uh, what patterns do you recommend for like dealing with microservices and multiple uh, policy information points or databases to also keep database low and latency low? Yeah, great question. Yeah, and and so this was this was a question that came up so often. This was years ago. I can't remember which KubeCon it was, but there was some KubeCon where we came back and we said, you know what, we got this question a lot. Let's write up some docs. And so there's a good website uh, on, or sorry, website. There's a good web page on the OPA website that sort of outlines five different ways of getting OPA. I think it's five. Five different ways of getting uh, data into OPA. And, and so this is really, um, uh, you know, I, I think I'll just talk through a couple of these very quickly because they aren't really dependent so much on the use case, right? The, these may be more or less valuable to you, just depending on the data, how big it is, how quickly it's changing, what your consistency requirements are. Um, and so well, one of the things that we find working with folks is that, you know, they, they just have these, these, um, these data requirements and, and it's, it's more or less independent of the use case. So, uh, you know, one, one way that we always suggest people get data into OPA uh, in order to make decisions is that uh, you can pass JOTs, so JSON web tokens, into OPA. And OPA has some pre-built, uh, some native support for actually being able to inspect the internals of the JOT. And so a very common use case in the microservice world is that, you know, you've got a user authenticate, They're, they belong to, you know, five groups. Those groups are embedded in the JOT. That JOT is handed over to OPA. And then when OPA is making a decision, it'll go ahead and, and inspect the internals of that token and, and then make the decision appropriately. So that's, that's you know, if you think broadly about data, the in, encoding those, uh, encoding that data into JOTs is really effective in terms of it's perfectly parallelizable, right? There's there's no real replication. There's no work that needs to happen. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a model that we like quite a bit. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quicker on the other ones. Uh, you can also go ahead and load data, arbitrary JSON data, into OPA through, uh, through bundles. So bundles are just this, this, this di distribution mechanism that OPA and, and StyroDAS support. Um, OPA supports it on its own, DAS supports it on its own, it works with OPA. But, uh, but one of the things we try to do there is that's really great for like static and medium-sized data that'll fit into memory. And so like with DAS, one of the things we can do is go ahead and fetch all kinds of different you know, data from different places, customers can push it in, and then we'll just go ahead and be responsible for distributing that to all the OPAs. Um, the other kinds of data are, are, are the other kinds of ways of getting OPA uh, data um, uh, would be uh, have, setting up like a, a watcher, like a, like a streaming kind of service uh, that's running as a sidecar next to OPA, let's say, and then pushing data into OPA's API. You can do that. Um, you can also use OPA's, uh, has a built-in that will actually go and allow you to reach out uh, to other HTTP services and go ahead and fetch data and bring it in and then make policy decisions using that data. Um, I feel like I'm missing one, but no, I think I got them all. Um, so, so that's I, kind I, of what we and, see. And I think, uh, so I, I think there's also kind of like a caching mechanism where like some of the previous data you might have used, you might be able to reuse something like that. Uh, well, there's caching with the HTTP send. So, sorry, that's the built-in. That's the functionality that will reach out into the world and grab HTTP data or data from an HTTP service. So that'll be cached uh, for some uh, uh, period of time. 
Um, all, I think of all of OPA conceptually as a cache of data. So, um, yeah. so that's the one that jumps to mind. Yeah. Okay. And, and specifically, again, one of the things that I'm seeing, and now I'm, I'm working on one of these, but I'm seeing more kind of like implementations of, of Zanzibar in the wild, right? Some of them are open source, some of them are, are SaaS, some of them are specific to companies like Airbnb and Carta. Um, how do you think of like Zanzibar implementations and, and OPA together? Like, where do you think there can be some complements there? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, and again, I, I like to think of this as, I, I think it's useful to, as a point of comparison to sort of think about OPA is really a stateless um, authorization service, right? It, it is a cache. It is not the source of truth for, um, for, for, for policy or for data, right? It is the thing you run in as many places as you want to make decisions quickly. When I think of the, the stateful services uh, like Zanzibar, what I think of is um, things that are are responsible for sort of being the source of truth for, let's say, permissions data. Uh, and so for me, the, the, um, those kinds of stateful services are going to be especially useful in like a multi-tenant app authorization kind of use case, right? Where you've got something like, you know, GitHub is always my, my, my example for this one. You've got GitHub, you've got, what, are they up to mil mil millions of users, I guess? You've got millions of users, let's say, and millions of tenants, and each of those tenants can control what the permissions are for all the other users in their tenant. And so there's this sort of um, case where you've got this uh, permissions data uh, that needs to be stored somewhere. And so in those cases where you have that permissions data, having a stateful dedicated service uh, is, is a pretty natural fit. Um, in terms of how you could marry these two, like this stateful service and the stateless service, um, you know, there are plenty of things we can do. You know, you can imagine having... Um, the stateless service running at the edge, like as a sidecar with, with microservices that are making whatever decisions they can or it can. Um, and then when it can't make that decision, you know, delegating to a centralized service. That's a very, that's, that's a pretty natural model um, uh, that, that comes to mind. Okay. And, and now let's kind of like step out of the, the OPA woods for a bit and kind of like dive deeper into, into Stida. We talked about like how you came to the space of like authorization through software-defined networking, but what made you uh, create a, a company to do policy management uh, and who is your primary audience? Yeah, great question. So yeah, when we started Styra, we've already sort of told you the origin story. We've already gone over this origin story and, and, and why we got it started. You know, what we, what we see really uh, today is that we see a bunch of, of, of developer-like folks. So either, you know, DevOps or DevSecOps or, uh, or really anybody who's administering uh, these cloud-native software systems um, and having to deal with the, the, the problems around um, you know, how do you manage authorization? How do you know who has access to what? Who, how, do you, how do you, more importantly, I think, control who has access to what? Um, that's something that, you know, we all do, you know, um, uh, and I think we would all do that better uh, and have better security postures overall if, if we, in fact, had that, that unified solution to, to policy. So that's typically who we talk to. We talk to, um, um, you know, the people who have their, their, um, their, their, where their core responsibilities are the safety, security, even the compliance of these cloud-native software systems, and then, you know, up the, up the management chain, depending on how far that goes. That makes sense. And, and from what you're seeing, what's making these companies, like, go, go the, the buy route, right? Again, OPA is open source. Anyone could go build some of the tooling that you're doing, uh, that you're building. Like, but what's making kind of, like, people say, no, we're going to go with Styra, we're going to buy this solution, this is what we should be doing. 
Yep. Well, there are a few things that we do at the Styrodaz level that I, I that are pretty compelling to a bunch of folks. So one of which is that we sort of give you this end-to-end solution. So it's out of the box, right? You you have a full uh, policy management solution there available. So when you're when you're uh, um, uh, when you're authoring, testing, deploying, uh, monitoring, looking at all the decision logs, uh, there's that entire policy lifecycle management that that we do in as part of DAS. And then as part of that, um, what we also know is that uh, you need more than an individual, a solution for an, an, an individual. You also need a solution that works for like an enterprise and an organization. Um, and so therefore, we have a bunch of, you know, enterprise uh, governance uh, uh, features that allow you to say, you know, for example, uh, all the production Kubernetes clusters must have these, you know, 10 rules in place. All of the dev microservice app, uh, dev microservice apps have to have these other rules in place. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think of those two things in terms of like feature sets is what draws a lot of folks that that you do have this end to end policy management solution um, that you'd have to go off and build on your own, honestly. Uh, and then over and above that, uh, the, the thing that I always think about is that we've baked a bunch of the expertise, a bunch of the you know hard lessons that we've learned about uh, uh, deploying OPA. Um, into the software. And so they're not going to stumble over a bunch of things and, 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 and struggle because it's already, you know, baked into this opinionated um, um, uh, product. Good. Uh, well, maybe kind of like a, cu- a curious question. Uh, wh- what is a use case that you saw someone use OPA for that you would have never thought of before you started the company? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, um, let's see. The, the one that comes to mind immediately, just because it's, it, it is one of those that's more surprising, was we had someone once use OPA to, uh, to implement like the physics engine, I believe, of, a, of a, like a video game, right? So, um, you know, not, not infrastructure, not applications, not CICD, had nothing to do really with cloud native. It was just uh, they, they really enjoyed building video games and needed some way of encoding the rules that, that govern the game. Wow, that's that's amazing. It, it would be very interesting to read a, a blog post about that. Yeah. Um, how do you determine what features to build next? Oh, here, uh, you know, we're pretty lucky in the sense that we've got a bunch of customers, we've got a bunch of open source users, and so we, we, you know, we pay a lot of attention to them, and we, you know, we we pay attention to uh, what people are doing in the open source. You know, what what use cases are are popular in the open source. We chat with community members and we understand what, you know, what challenges they have. We do the same thing with our customers. And so you know, we're pretty lucky that, uh, you know, we, we, we can follow the, the open source in our, in our commercial uh, communities. That, that's, yeah, that, that's probably kind of like a good synergy opportunity between those two. Um, kind of like starting to close, let's say, again, someone listened to this, uh, someone's listening to the recording. How... Do you recommend someone learn uh, OPA? What resources are available out there that you think, hey, these are the things that you should read? Yep, uh, I'll point you to a few things. Uh, the, uh, uh, if you want to learn Rago, right, the policy language, uh, I'm a bit biased here because uh, I, I built it. But we've got, a, 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 I'll say, a good course, a great course on, on Rago uh, on the Styra Academy. Um, so that's, you know, it's like videos and it's quizzes and it's, um, you know, hands-on labs. So that's a, that's a, that's a great resource. Um, there's also, um, the, the OPA website, of course, it's got great docs. Uh, there's also the OPA playground. Uh, so that's kind of a, a way of, of trying and sharing policies. 
Uh, and I'll finally point you to the the DAS, the Styros DAS product. Is you can sign up for that for free, and you can and you can sort of see firsthand um, that you know the vision is at least as far as we built it um, for for unified authorization. Yeah, that's that's great, and and we'll add links to all of those resources in the show notes uh, when when we upload the recording. Uh, final question: uh, What are your biggest takeaways from this all, all of these years that your experience? since you started OPA, since you built Stida, up until today? Well, there's so many things, I guess. Um, I, I guess the one, I, maybe this is what I'll pick, um, for, at least for today, which is, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, that this, this synergy between open source, general purpose, unopinionated projects, together with, um, you know, a, a commercial opinionated um, uh, offering it is kind of nice in the sense that um, you, you get the best, best of both worlds. And I think that that sort of balances, it gives people that really want something that's super easy to use, you know, you've got the commercial product for that. For people who want to build things themselves, for people that want to go off and, and explore uh, new, new applications of, uh, or new uses of, of that open source, they can go off and do that too. Um, so I, I really do like that balance, and I and I think it's um, I think I think we see that all the time. But it, you know I think going through the process of building these things out uh, made made that made that synergy especially especially obvious. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. Uh, I'm happy to hear that as well. So again, that this is all for today. Uh, we're uh, uh, over like 70 minutes of conversation. This has been really interesting. Uh, Tim, I want to really thank you for being here. Uh, and talking about all of these things, it's been uh, great. I'm sure people uh, listening here and listening to the recording will, will really appreciate it. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we should do it again. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for anyone listening, uh, we are going to be doing a space next week with uh, some folks from Airbnb about how they built uh, a Zanzibar-inspired system to manage and, and centralize permissions. It's called Himeji. There's a blog post about it. And that's what we'll be talking about. So uh, we hope to see you there. Thanks a lot. And stay safe. Bye-bye.